Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Chris Jones. Chris is a photojournalist and investigative reporter and covers domestic extremism for the collaborative nonprofit website 100 Days in Appalachia. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, and the Village Voice, and he won an Edward R. Murrow Award for hard news coverage in 2021. He also served as an infantryman in the United States Marine Corps from 2010 to 2014, which included two deployments in Afghanistan. And he's previously also been an EMT. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So a few episodes ago, we had Russell Midori of Military Veterans and Journalism on. He served in the military before becoming a journalist. So did you were named one of the top 10 military journalists uh, by MVJ. Can you articulate the story of your path to a journalism career? Honestly, I, journalism wasn't something that I really had ever thought about in terms of of employment or, or a career until I was getting out of the Marines and being a machine gunner in the Marine Corps, you didn't really make plans past the next deployment. And then all of a sudden I was getting out and I was like, okay, now what? And and, and just from being in the military and going to Afghanistan as a Marine, you read a lot of news coverage coming out of it. And after two deployments, I realized that there's a lot of daylight between how the war was getting covered and what aspects were getting covered and sort of what the reality was on the ground there. And I was getting out, kind of thought I might want to do something in terms of writing, but I really got latched on this idea of wanting to contribute to a, a better understanding of, of the war in Afghanistan at the time for Americans. And then journalism seemed that was a route you could take there. I actually knew at that time, or not didn't know, but I met at that time a guy named uh, Ben Brody, who's involved with RFA about a year after I got out. And, you know, he was like, I was in the Army and I'm a photojournalist. And I was like, okay, well, at least one other person's done it. I, I could take a stab at it. And then I think really it was when I started going to school and wasn't a great student, more in terms of I just, I, I didn't really have the patience to, to sit still. and. Journalism very quickly became something where I could put a lot of effort outside of the classroom into it. I, I actually I, I went to school at uh, Columbia University, and there's no undergraduate journalism program there. And I realized that after I was a student there. So I spent a lot of time just trying to sneak into the journalism school building. And I finally did it enough times where I talked to somebody who was the head of the DART <coughs> Center for Trauma Journalism, a guy named uh, Bruce Shapiro. And I told him, Hey, I, I, I want to be a journalist. What should I do? Should I go here? And he said, no, you should just go out and be a journalist. You're in New York City. There's tons of local outlets. Like, if you want to do this, go do it. Don't wait for someone to give you permission to be a journalist. So, yeah, I really took that to heart and it gave me an excuse to skip classes and just prioritizing. It allowed me to prioritize something outside of school, which I really appreciated. And most importantly, it, it gave me a way to get back to Afghanistan. I definitely think me going into journalism followed a desire to go back to Afghanistan as a civilian in some capacity. Now, I want to go back to the earlier part of your life. I know that you had family in the military. How did your upbringing influence your perception of journalism? So I grew up, I was a Navy brat. Both my parents were naval officers. And when I try to think back, I didn't, journalism was always there. It was definitely something you just, you really took for granted, right? And I think one of my earliest sort of vivid memories of journalism was after my parents had left the military and we moved to Missouri and I was in Joplin and there was a, a local paper, the Joplin Globe, and my mom was really bent out of shape about some zoning thing because we lived kind of like not right downtown, we was a little bit in the woods and they were going to cut down some trees or something. And um, I remember my mom would drag us to the like, east city council meeting so she could you know talk to city council and there's always this guy in the corner um with a notebook who was just furiously writing everything that was happening and i was like man that guy needs to get a better hobby and then i realized that was a that was a journalist and then the next day after one of these meetings i see my mom in the paper and i just kind of realized like whoa now it's real now this thing 
that started out as one person in the community really wanting to have an influence on, on what their life was like. This guy, this journalist, whose job it was to just show up and always document everything, he he was in a position where he could sort of make it real in the, the rest of the community. So I think that was like the earliest memory I have where, where journalism always felt like this very accessible part of day, not day-to-day life, right? But it, it felt like a very accessible part of living in a community in America. Before I was in Joplin, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I was born. And the Post and Courier was, obviously as a kid, I only cared about the comics, right? And the, the Sunday comics, they were a big double truck. But at the same time, it was always reliably there. And, and if I had a question about something that was happening, if I saw it on TV or, oh, what's going to happen with X, Y, or Z? But well, check the paper. Is it in the paper? That that kind of an experience was, I feel like, pretty broad strokes. It's familiar for a lot of people, but that was definitely mine. So you were brought up in a military family, but you were someone who was taught that the newspaper was an important thing. I mean, it definitely wasn't emphasized. I cannot stress enough how, like, prior to, hey, I'm going to go be a journalist. I should say, too, I mean, that the... I didn't know I was joining the Marine Corps until about a, work, a week before I joined the Marine Corps. And that is pretty similar to me in journalism. It wasn't, I knew, I do know, like, when we lived overseas, the American paper, Stars and Stripes, the military newspaper, that was like, that was really the biggest only connection you really had to, to what was going on back in the States. So that, that was really important. And I think that was the, it was definitely leverage, you know, it was growing up the Stars and Stripes paper, just having that connection back to what was happening in the United States. That that was really important. And my parents made a point definitely to make sure I was reading it and, and understood that you could trust newspapers to sort of inform your worldview. Let's take the, to the uh, fast forward to the current time and the current position. And that came as a result of Report for America. So what led you to that moment? And then what what are you doing in your current position? And I suppose we should have you explain what is 100 Days in Appalachia. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll work backwards from that one. So 100 Days in Appalachia is a newsroom that started in uh, 2016. And it was originally supposed to just go for 100 days, uh, the first 100 days of the Trump presidency from this Appalachia perspective. And it was really this idea that through sheer force of will and stubbornness, our, our editor-in-chief, Dana Kester, willed this thing into existence. And then after the first 100 days, just really kept going with it. And there really is not a ton of local news outlets, period, in uh, this, this region. The ones that are here are, are shutting down pretty quick or already have. And there's just really not a lot of access to the the means that you need to run a newsroom, right? Money is pretty tight across the board, doesn't matter who you are. But also just having the, the time and the capacity and the, the education to, to do the job. So we fill a pretty unique sort of gap, I would say. Not the whole gap. Working in a newsroom in West Virginia can very much feel like a little Dutch boy jamming your fingers into a bunch of holes. When, when there's a tsunami coming from the other side of the dam. But yeah, that's who we are, what we do. Um, I found out about Report for America pretty early because I, I followed the Ground Truth Project and Global Post, which were all affiliated organizations. And when they announced a Report for America, I got really excited because I was like, oh man, this I might get a job in journalism and not just be a freelancer. And, and I was really excited about it too because I think that I... I had, even before hearing about RFA, I kind of approached journalism in the same lens that I approached being a Marine or being an EMT, which was like, this is public service, right? You're not here. You're definitely not here to make a buck. You're here to do something that, that just has to get done, has to get done for the wheels of society to stay on, right? And it really, I, I was really grateful because it seemed like the first organization or initiative that, that really echoed that versus sort of this idea that journalism is this race to the five or six national newsrooms that are mostly in in New York City. And I applied for the first time in 2019 and didn't get it. And I thought, okay, noted. Let me try again next year. (laughs) And I actually, it was, yeah, it was the, the end of 20, 
19, early 2020, right you know, it was before COVID. And I'd been going back and forth to Afghanistan and I'd actually just gotten another Afghan, another visa for Afghanistan, which is the whole process. And I was getting ready to, to go on another couple weeks or months trip back to Afghanistan. And then COVID hit. And I was living in New York City at the time. So I immediately went from put, grabbing my body armor and making sure I had, you know, my supplies for Afghanistan to running around in a P100 mask following Bronx FDNY ambulances into apartment buildings where there were whole floors that were empty because everybody had, you know, had COVID. So it, it was, I mean, it was a surreal time, but it also on a personal level gave me a lot of anxiety because I was like, uh oh. I'm definitely not getting to Afghanistan. Now what? And then I was really lucky. Heard back from RFA because I'd applied for 2020. And they said, yeah, you want to talk to this newsroom in West Virginia? I was like, I will talk to any newsroom in anywhere. Are you kidding me? Like, But I ended up getting on the phone with, with the team at 100 Days in Appalachia. And like, it very quickly went from being an interview to realizing that we were really kind of on the same page in a lot of ways in terms of extremism and, and how it was not just the fact that it was an issue, which we were pretty ahead of the curve on, but really how covering it from out here was really important because a lot of times the coverage on extremism doesn't happen until somebody's shooting or waving a gun around, right? And the folks at 100 Days in Appalachia, they were like, you know, we want to cover this before we get to that point and really do reporting that unpacks the back end, right? And and hopefully looks for ways to, to bring the temperature down. All right, so that we don't bury the, the lead here, we should take it right to January 6th. And I'm going to yeah. probably go back and forth among a few different things. But January 6th, you were at the U.S. Capitol that day covering the West Virginian aspect of the story. Before, like, as you were getting set to go to wherever you decided to go, what were you expecting the day to be like? I actually thought it was going to be more violent than it was. I knew in about October that January 6th was going to be pretty, because that's when you stop seeing memes and Facebook rhetoric and all of a sudden these QAnon mom groups in, in West Virginia were like, okay, no, we're going to take buses and also what weapons can we take, right? It shifted pretty much right after the election towards we're all something's happening on the sixth and we're going to be the thing that happens. You also saw a lot. It, it was interesting. You saw less mobilization of kind of some extremist groups, but then at the same time, you saw other ones really latch onto it. Right. And then the fact that we just saw a lot of, when we saw people actively trying to figure out what weapons they could bring to the Capitol. Right in advance. That was really concerning. And then in December, there was a lot of street violence in Washington, D.C., where Proud Boy groups were going around and getting into like literal knife fights with folks. And a lot of people saw that as like, oh, that's just weird. But at the same time, what that also was, that was the Proud Boys testing the Washington, D.C. law enforcement community. And they wanted to see, okay, how fast did they respond to the presence of weapons, right? What is their response? How freely can we move around this city with the intention of inflicting violence, right? So so that night, we knew that there were people who were going to bring firearms, who were openly discussing which firearms they were going to bring, how they were going to conceal them. So from my end, where I was very deeply, fully immersed in, in this ecosystem, January 6th was the biggest surprise for me for January 6th was that nobody got shot other than Ashley Babbitt. Now, you you had military experience, military training to draw upon when you yeah. go into a situation like that. So I, I want to look at that, and I want to look at the... And we can't really do it over audio, but I'll link to it. People can see the pictures that you took that day. Um, how were you able to get the pictures you took, both from a psychological perspective and staying cool within the situation that you were in, and like kind of somewhat of a technical perspective, where yeah. there's a guy about to like ram a huge piece of wood like directly above where you are, and I'm like, how did he get that shot? So I guess I I would ask you to, if you could just take us through both of those aspects of trying yeah. to cover a chaotic event like that. Yeah, I I think I would say 
80% of being a machine gunner in the Marine Corps does not prepare you for journalism. <laughs> but the 20% that does is really useful. And that 20% is really one, like, situational awareness, right? Being able to be in an extremely kinetic, chaotic situation and, like, very quickly sort of read the mood, right? Both in terms of literally, like, okay, how are people behaving? What do their faces look like? Are they upset? Are they angry? Do they notice me? Or are they upset at someone else? But also reading it in terms of, okay, these guys have a lot of sticks and they're going to start throwing them. So I know that a picture is going to happen there, but also the law enforcement folks with guns are going to be focused on them. So, so how close do I really want to be to that? I mean, these are all calculations that are happening like a split second. And I, and I definitely, yeah, having two deployments helps <laughs> in those situations because it's just not the worst situation I've been in. Right. But yeah, I mean, really just being able to kind of get calm and centered and, and sort of as everything else ramps up internally, I'm, I'm coming down. So in um, sports, uh, I'm sorry, in sports, we would call that like slowing the game down, essentially. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Only here, it's completely, it, there's much uh, more of a life or death component to it, potentially. Yeah, yeah. I, and it's very, I mean, it's, sometimes it's something as simple as like breathing, right? And making sure I'm breathing out my nose to number one, make sure nothing comes in my mouth. But also number two, that's going to bring my, my pulse rate down and it's going to help me make, you know, more critical decisions, not emotional decisions. But then the other side of it is that like having, being a photographer in these moments, I think helps a lot because you have this very technical, it's like being a machine gunner in a lot of ways, right? I have like a device, I have a machine in my hand. But I have to manipulate very specifically and point it at people and a very specific outcome has to happen when I hit the button, right? So on that kind of mechanical level, I used to, when I first started doing photography, I, I think there's definitely two kinds of photographers. There's ones who are just naturally good at it and they see pictures and they're able to make them. And then there's people like me who suck and have to take 10,000 bad pictures to make one good picture. And then once you've made that one good picture, you have to take 10,000 more bad ones. And I definitely had to beat photojournalism into my head, but I would do it the same way that we learned how to get really good at, you know, working on machine guns. So when I got my first DSLR camera, I would go into my bathroom and turn all the lights off and I would try to adjust the settings and be like, okay, I know my camera's at this f-stop and this shutter speed and this ISO, and I wanted to go to another f-stop shutter speed and ISO, and I'll just do that in the dark, which is how we learned how to assemble and disassemble our weapons so so those kind of things sort of crossed over but the there's a huge difference right like when you're in the military it's you and 40 of your best buddies and you guys are all strapped to the teeth and you're the scariest guys in the room at any given moment right when you're a journalist it is the opposite you are extremely alone and unafraid at most you have a couple other journalists that you've rolled with before and you can trust each other no one's coming to save you if it gets spicy so especially on the sixth, I think what allowed me to get images that I made was I was so low profile, right? I, I don't wear body armor. If I do wear body armor, you're never going to see it. I don't have the big, nothing on me. I don't have a big press pass anywhere, a big patch that screams, I'm a journalist. I'm never going to wear a big full face mask or anything that's going to reduce my ability to have situational awareness. And the other side too, is just being super conscious of how conscious other people are to me. Right. So like there's an amazing picture in the middle of all the chaos on the sixth. And I realized that these guys who are beating up other journalists are starting to eyeball me. I'm probably going to go to the other side of the Capitol for a little bit. Um, I'm going to be like, you know what? Yeah. Could I make really good pictures here? Maybe. Or, you know, excuse me. It's just going to come beat me up. And it's not that's not I'm not going to make a picture there. Right. And and making one picture is not worth getting taken out of the day for, for the rest of it. So. Yeah, that's the crossover of the military stuff. But so, but in so normally I go through people's stories and I dissect them and I ask them to dissect them. But I wanted to do that with two photos here. One was the one that I was referencing, a guy holding a very long piece of wood, and he's either going to throw it or ram it through something. You were um, able to get in the background kind of the full picture of things, a Confederate flag, an American flag, and a Trump flag all in the background. I'm curious, what ended up happening there? Like, what was the aftermath of what the guy did? Oh, he launched that thing, and I think he hit a cop in the head. 
Yeah, so it's funny that picture. The DOJ owes me a day rate because they actually used that picture in a federal case against that individual. But yeah, and I, I it's funny because in making that picture, I had actually started out looking at all the flags in the back. That's what initially drew my attention, and I knew that guy because he'd been kind of agitating and and caused, he'd been throwing things and stuff and was trying to get other people to throw things. I was like, this guy's gonna do something. Very visually stupid, but I want to make sure it's in the context of those flags. (laughs) And he actually, one of his buddies had like hit me in the head with a pole right beforehand. So I was already down. That's why it's from that, that lower angle. And I just, I mean, in those moments, it doesn't matter what you're covering. Like when it's violent like that, like at the end of the day, your job is to just keep the camera up. Right. And so I, at this point, I'd already been tear gassed and maced and stuff, so I'm, I can only see out of like one eye, and I'm like blinking the whole time. But as long as I've got, it, it was just enough where I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's the picture's happening. I'm gonna hit the frame, and then well into the evening, I, well into the evening, I, I finally looked through the pictures and I saw that one, and I was like, nice. All right. And then the other picture was of what I, I'm guessing was a father's son. The father had just gotten tear gassed. The son, and I don't want to project on him, but he looks kind of dazed, like he saw something maybe he wished he hadn't seen. Is there a story behind that photo? Yeah, I, so I really quickly on the 6th realized that there's this like intense sort of religious and and specifically religious iconography component to everything that was happening. And the experience was religious. For, I think a lot of these people, I mean, so many of them felt like they were coming to something that was ordained by God or QAnon, which can be the same thing for some folks. And the, by the time I photographed those two, like I was looking right for those kind of moments. I was really looking not to misrepresent it, but it was so pervasive everywhere. And, and when you're photographing something where there's tons of other press around, you have two options. You can try to make the same pictures that everyone else is making and hope that yours are better. And I'm not that good of a photographer. Or you can think about, okay, what about this, this moment, this scene, this experience? What do I think is one step beneath the surface, but is consistent enough that it still accurately represents everything? So for me, it was all this religious iconography. And those two, they were actually coming back out of the Capitol. So they had already been inside. And I remember when I saw the sun, I was like, this kid looks like he's in a cult. Like, I've never seen a a person who, it, it, you can see the dissonance in the kid's eyes. I mean, it, it's he very clearly has had a break, a break from reality. And then to me, also the fact that he was having to drag his father out, who his father brought him here, right? Clearly, you know what I mean? And so it was this incredible, I think, inversion of this relationship where the, the dad is the one whose eyes are covered and messed up from tear gas and blinded, right? And now the son has to lead him out. So, you know, that once I saw those two, I was like, oh, I got to get a frame of that. I, I didn't even know exactly what it was. And to, I mean, that's a picture that to me is still kind of mysterious. I, I haven't fully decided what I photographed there, but it definitely felt very real and pervasive in terms of of how people were experiencing that. I do want to pause here to note that Chris's Report for America experience is somewhat one of a kind. Yes, opportunities exist to cover domestic extremism and similar topics, but if you want to get a feel for what other Report for America reporters do, I'd suggest checking out episode 22 with Morgan Mullings, episode 39 with Cassidy Arena, episode 47 with Farnoosh Amiri, and episode 57, most recently, with Carrington Tatum of MLK50. They do a lot of local reporting. There's more day-to-day writing in their work than in Chris's work, which is largely focused on big-picture topics. All these episodes are linked in the show notes. I want to circle back to your, as it relates to photography, with your time in Afghanistan and your work in Afghanistan, and a section of your website that I saw that was titled, uh, you had plenty of, I guess, war-related shots, but you also had a section on your website that was called where the war wasn't. And I was wondering if you could just explain what that was and what the shots on that website were about. Yeah, so where the war isn't was really, as I went back as a, as a photojournalist to this country that I'd only experienced 
from the other end of a machine gun, it one, it was really healthy and I'm really glad I did it. And I think part of what made it healthy was that realizing that Afghanistan and, and the people that, that live there are so, so, so much more than the war that we've been fighting there. Right. And, and the things that are happening there and, and, and the experience, I mean, it's, I don't know. There's, no, I don't know a way to say it. That's why I take pictures, but I don't know a way to say it. That doesn't sound like really trivial and contrived and like douchey, honestly. But it was just me as a young man who had had this insanely traumatic experience in this country going back and, number one, realizing that there was more to this place than what I had gone through and wanting to really lean into that and experience it and kind of hoping uh, um, hoping that I could point my camera at things that were happening that had nothing to do with the war, but were still important, right, and were still useful is the wrong word, but but could still impact people in the States, right? And I also, when I, was, I first started going to Afghanistan in like 2016, 2017, I think, and like, I didn't, I was not a, you know, journalist by any stretch of the imagination. I literally had a camera and just jumped on a plane and showed up, and my first ever published assignment was from Kabul. <laughs> and uh, so, so my journalism career is the embodiment of fake it till you make it, but I really learned how to do journalism from Afghan journalists. And I learned how to do photography from Afghan photographers. And so where the war isn't for me was like, I think me trying to sort of appreciate that and look at what this country and this place and these people were outside of, like I said, the, the context of, well, in 2001, the Americans showed up. And I think it was, you know, I really have, a lot of trouble with images with making images that are personal and are not about violence i have a lot of trouble with sort of images where i think i'm in the picture or, or it feels like it's coming from me and that section is very personal and very much you know, this is me trying to say something to myself but i guess everyone else can look at it <laughs> while i do that what did what did you learn from afghan journalists and afghan photographers well always check under your car for bombs but I mean, I, I can't stress enough. I mean, like literally everything I know about you, I, I learned what a nutcraft was from a, an Afghan reporter. I learned what a reverse pyramid paragraph, right? Just the idea of like, this is how you do the news. I learned how to caption photos from this Afghan photographer, Farshad Hussein, this guy up in Mazari Sharif in France now. But like, I, when I was getting into journalism, my like journalism heroes were not a bunch of white dudes with Pulitzers. We were great journalists, but like I wanted to be a journalist in Afghanistan. I wanted to cover Afghanistan. My heroes were like the people that I was watching do incredible journalism in their own country. But and also because like they were local for them that they're local reporters. This is their country. This is their, you know, province, this is their homes. And that was just the trajectory I wanted to follow way more than hey, I'm a dude who shows up in Afghanistan for a week, takes a bunch of pictures of dead or dying people and then goes home and you know tells americans to be sad about it right i definitely didn't want to do that and um you know i was really grateful that there were some afghan reporters and, and photographers who were willing to kind of tolerate my presence one thing that we should note too is that when you were in afghanistan you had a piece published in the new york times 2019 on challenge coins that it had a much larger vibe to it than just challenge coins, but use challenge coins to make larger points. Just tell us about that story. Yeah, so that story started out as a very inebriated text message to somebody who works at the New York Times <laughs> at like two o'clock in the morning in Kabul, which is really how I originally, like, I mean, less inebriation now, but a lot of my stories started out as these like text rants to someone, right? And, and they're like, hey, you should write that. And that's literally what uh, uh, C.J. Chivers, who's a you know, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author and reporter for, from the New York Times. I texted that to him at like two in the morning and he said essentially to the effect of like, sober up, write that in an email and send that to like this editor as a pitch. And I did that and give me it's in the piece, but basically in Kabul, you can go to all these stores and there's this area called Chicken Street that's kind of like a tourist trap tchotchke area and they've got like jewelry stores and clothes stores but it's all the foreigners who go to Kabul know it 
But in these stores, you can find these like buckets basically that just have a bunch of like old Soviet medals and coins and these challenge coins, which is this like kind of uniquely American military practice that people are either like super intense about or they think is very stupid where this you get these custom made metal coins these like big discs and they can be specific to a military unit or to an operation or to a conflict zone or whatever and or you know, sometimes like commanding officers of units will make challenge coins and they're kind of handed out as these tokens of a lot of things it can be a token of gratitude it can be a token of yeah you were there you did whatever and I think in a lot of ways, they are part of this thing that when you're in the military, in a war, especially one that's not really very closely paid attention to outside of the military, you, you, you're not making a lot of money. You're not learning skills that will lead to long, illustrious careers and anything other than killing. And you kind of have to recognize each other because you can't really expect that external validation. So these challenge points really represent that but finding them in this tchotchke shop right underneath medals from the last time a major superpower had invaded afghanistan and, and realizing that i refer to it as as they've called afghanistan the graveyard of empires right because england and russia and us everybody who invades them doesn't go well <laughs> and so to me it was this I guess I kind of shot called it, but uh, to me, it was like, this really speaks to the fact that even you know, already here in Kabul, we're sort of relegated to the same, same status as the Soviets, where our little medals that meant so much to some American at some point are now kind of these like $3 curiosos or whatever the word for it is, right? And it just also really, I think, kind of spoke to my experience, right? Where like in the military, in this war, we, we, in the military, you try to make so many things sacred because your job is kind of to profane the sanctity of life as a practice, right? And getting out of the, out of the military and then going back to Afghanistan and realizing how short-sighted that can be and, and how in, in trying to make things sacred, you are really absolving yourselves and, and sort of putting blinders on to what being on the other end of American guns is like. And that that piece, and I think really that experience sort of came out of me on what I thought I knew about Afghanistan at that point. We'll put links to everything that we've talked about in the show notes. I want to, we've been all over the place. I want to kind of center back on your current position and the ideas for stories that you come up with and things that you've done uh, for 100 Days in Appalachia. And one that you recently did was on a West Virginian politician Eric Barber, who was elected as a Democrat to city council, he'd actually been in both parties, and then four years later, he's storming the Capitol. It was a print piece and a 23-minute documentary that you directed, run by uh, The Intercept, which you can find on YouTube. Can you walk us through that story from idea generation, whether it was a text or whatever it was, all the way through to being able to do all the different things that led to the finished product? Yeah, I should say up front that I think saying that I directed it is inaccurate. I worked with a really talented uh, cinematographer named Nick Curran, and I was, at the end of it, I kept demanding that the credits say a film by Nick Curran while Chris Jones screamed in the background, which is much more accurate to how the process went, I should say. But idea generation, so I had gotten tipped off that I had originally been in D.C. because I knew a state delegate, like a, a House delegate for the West Virginia House of Representatives or House of Delegates. He was going to be there. So that's who I was originally trying to go find. Didn't pan out. Things got a little sideways when we actually got there. But on my way back on the 7th, I was getting text messages from somebody that I had met months earlier because they had basically had like militia guys come by their house and they were scared. It was a Navy veteran. And so through the sort of veteran whisper network, we had gotten in touch, not as journalists, but as veteran to veteran, like, Hey, you're scared. How can I help? Right. And then 
And once they let me know basically about, about Eric Barber, I was still trying to map out like, okay, how many West Virginians were there and realizing that a lot of them were elected officials. But after about a month or two and we kind of had the, the tally more or less, and then also because the charges were starting to come in and the arrests were happening, I was looking at everybody from West Virginia and I was like, okay, I'm not, I don't have the bandwidth to do a story about all of them. I only only have a bandwidth to do a story about one of them and I want to do a really big deep dive. And I think because I hate myself, I was like, instead of doing the very simple, straightforward story, I'm going to find one that makes no sense, is in deep in the woods. And if I tell this story, everyone's going to hate me. And uh, that was Derek Barber's story. (laughs) So I decided to zoom in on that. And then, like I said, Nick Curran, he... We were just talking on the phone, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to go after this story about this guy and kind of explained it to him a little bit. And he was like, well, let's make it a documentary. And I was like, I don't, okay, I guess. I don't know how any of this works. And so he you know, he came along, and, and really it was just hey, me and him and I, not a writer. But we just hit the ground, right? And we, we just started talking to every single person that we could find that was connected to this story, right? And we really circled around Barber for like two or three months last summer where we're interviewing anybody who had been involved at these kind of moments in his trajectory that seemed to define him. And I had his phone number, but I didn't want to call him because I didn't really want to like, number one, I'm like, you know, I don't know if this guy's facing federal charges. I wouldn't want to talk to these making a documentary about me either. And I also was like, honestly, I, I kind of wanted to like, respect the guy a little bit and say like if i can tell the story without talking to you like i'm gonna try and do that not because i didn't want him to have you know a voice in it but just because like i didn't want the guy feeling like he had to incriminate himself as he's facing federal charges he's a former felon this could get pretty ugly for him but then you know about two months in just chasing people around and starting to piece together his trajectory and getting in touch with with these different people had different influences on him Eventually, we hit a point where I was just like, fuck it, man, let's call him. And we called him and he said, yeah, come on by. And then we just drove out. Us. We, Nick was terrified because you know, this was in Parkersburg, West Virginia. It's like a pretty big city for West Virginia. And uh, when Eric said, like, yeah, you can come do an interview with me, he invited us out to his property, which is like kind of out in the woods. And I was like, this is fine, totally normal, whatever. But Nick was like, uh, we're going to go meet this guy in the woods by ourselves. And I was like, yeah, dude, welcome to journalism. Like, this is what I've been doing for the past two years. And it went really well. I think Eric Barber is like a very complex guy. I mean, this is also a dude who, when he's not, he's like kind of totally out of politics. But he and I share a very genuine like love of, of stock car racing and specifically dirt track racing. and. I helped him. He did this interview for me. He didn't get in my way as we were doing this interview. It's kind of going to blow up his life. So, like, I tried to scratch his back because he was a pit crew guy for the only openly gay dirt track driver in West Virginia. And I had a connection to a dude at Sports Illustrated. And I got, I talked to him, him about, like, hey, there's the only openly gay dirt track driver in West Virginia. Um, like, this is a real ass story and, and I can help you put it together. And it wasn't because I wanted to like show him that I could do blah blah. It's because this guy, Dustin Sprouse, the, the dirt track driver, is having sponsorship issues. And Eric was like, "Hey, we're really trying to get him some sponsorship stuff. I don't know if you can do a story about him or whatever." And I was like, "All, I think I can help. We'll get it into Sports Illustrated." It's. I only bring that up to say that like it's not like this is a the kind of reporting where you're like, okay you're on my radar because you did something. I'm going to come in and extract as much as I can from you. And then I'm never going to talk to you again. Like I live around these people, right? These are, everyone knows where I live and I know where they live. And I'm not here to make journalism a weapon. It's part of your experience. And any opportunity I have to like put journalism in someone's hands as a tool to make them feel like they've been able to express themselves. I'm going to do that. But at the same time, if you show up at the Capitol with a helmet and start breaking stuff and would have been one of the people who would have tried to hurt me, I'm going to do a documentary about you. <laughs> to kind of close this out, you've done a number of stories. Most of these seem to be 
four, five, six, seven months ago, where you did case studies of coverage of domestic extremism, because this was your beat, and you've observed everyone else who is handling this beat. And there were aspects of that. One aspect was covering protests that a militia group was threatening and attacking a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, the head of the militia basically called for violence. The news outlet that covered it ignored that the statements that he was making were false and just transcribed his words. You said, should not be published actions more important than words. And I yeah. in particular really like that. You've done other pieces where you've talked about word usage and the power of the word clash in particular, as an example. What other words and labels are you seeing used improperly? Are there particular concerns that you have now, months after you've done these pieces? How do you feel about the coverage of domestic extremism as a whole? I think that it has a lot, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think there's also two layers of this coverage. There's the national level and there's the local level. I think the local level is a lot better than the national level. I think the national level coverage of this is still feels obligated to make these false equivalencies and sort of a, it's an A versus B issue and is really less interested in the reality or the complexities of the situation and more strapping these uh, moments to pre-existing narratives that, that certain outlets or news organizations have already sort of signed up for, right, and, and gone with. So, so yeah. A lot could be improved, I think. If you look at how, I mean, how things are being covered right up until, I mean, we just had the one year anniversary of January 6th, right? And if you look at most of the coverage around it, especially on the national level, it was these breathless TikTok second by second. And then they were here and then they went this door and then they hit this person and then, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, right? And, and it's like, this is irrelevant to Americans who are about to vote in one of the most important midterm elections in my entire life, if not the most important, right? The the second by second, what type of jacket they wore is not the point of why we need to pay attention to January 6th, right? Um, on the local level, you have reporters who have been looking for the people who participate in their own community and following them consistently, right? Who have been saying, hey, this guy, here's how the cases are going. Here's what this guy's saying. We've learned new context about this person, right? You have a lot less sort of January 6th happened and, and now it's all gone and we don't have to worry about it. But man, sure, that was crazy, right? At the local level, it's much more like like this is part of a continuum and we're staying on top of these individuals and we're also now looking for other extremist groups and activity in our community and we're going to start covering those. And for those pieces that we wrote early on or earlier this year really came out of just like an incredible amount of frustration with the industry. And then also when writing these articles, the realization that like the frustration was kind of useless. This was something that I would have made these mistakes if I hadn't spent the last two years fully inside of this world and analyzing this, analyzing the coverage and thinking very intentionally and consistently about how do I make sure I'm not platforming a dangerous person when I shove a camera in their face, right? How do I make sure that the context I'm giving informs the reader, not just fans of this moment, right? How do I make sure that I'm not putting information out there that's inflammatory, right? If I have to say something that could be misconstrued or could confirm a bias, like how am I contextualizing that information in a way that allows people to make more informed decisions in the voting booth, right? Which is really, at least from my understanding, like that's what journalism is all about, right? So. And actually, that process ultimately turned into us starting a documenting or basically a, a workshop for local journalists who are covering extremism that we're going to get going here. And I think we're still doing nominations and, and applications for right now. But we just realized that like we could sit around and be annoyed that everybody else is not as good as us at this, right? Or we could be like, hey, guys, let's show you how we do it because this is not a beat where you can make mistakes and you issue a retraction later and everything's fine like if you publish bad stuff people can get killed right i always use the example of there's this vice news documentary about the boogaloo boys in 2020 and then there was a new york times feature piece about them and those were those two media like pieces were the two largest drivers of recruitment for the Boogaloo movement, 
and I have countless screenshots of national level organizers of this, this you know, domestic terrorist movement saying, oh man, this was great. Like this was great press. And then I would watch people come into these, you know, encrypted chat rooms and they were like, I had never heard of you. And then I read the New York Times piece and now I want to be in your group. And it's, it's funny, but it's terrifying to realize that like we're all running around shooting ourselves in the foot with this stuff. And hopefully, I mean, that's kind of the big focus right now is like, how do we get everybody on the same page? How do we get everyone on the same page about something like why using the term lone wolf attacker is not just a misnomer, it's a dangerous misrepresentation of reality, right? Because Dylan Roof, right, who killed multiple people in Charles, South Carolina, he was described as a lone wolf attacker. Well, he was deeply enmeshed in white supremacist online activity and online, you know, groups. I mean, the guy had a Rhodesian flag, right? He had a Rhodesian flag jacket. The guy was an explicit white supremacist. You don't have to have another person walk up to you and say, hey, Dylan Roof, I need you to go murder people in a church right now for that person to have been part of a very real, right, broader organization. So, again, there's just we have a whole workshop about the words that are not properly used. But but I think it's really more about thinking about the idea of like in play vocabulary. Right. And we're in this like. I hate to use this word, but like we're in this postmodern moment, right? Where where nothing is sacred. Words can mean whatever I shout them to mean the loudest, right? You look at someone like Nick Fuentes, who's like a blatant neo-Nazi white supremacist, and he'll go around and telling people that he's Afro-Hispanic, right? And if he yells it loud enough, he functionally is. You know what I mean? So so really it's I think it's less of a here's the right words here's the wrong words to use and more of a as journalists, as the arbiters of truth, we have to be much more self-aware and, and understanding the context around the terminology we use and really being focused on who wants to change the way things are understood. Who wants to change what words mean, right? And how does my reporting play into that? You mentioned how you're helping others with regards to this workshop and other things that you're doing to help people covering domestic extremism. We need to go back to Report for America just for a second here. How has Report for America helped you? I mean, it gave me my first ever full-time job in journalism, which no other organization in the world can say that. But also, I think it's about, I mean, journalism can be such a solitary experience, especially when you're a freelancer, right? Like everyone's, you can have your friends, but you're all competing amongst one another. And there's this really gross sort of dynamic where you can collaborate up to a point, but then if you over collaborate, you're put, like, you're not going to get any return out of that, right? I mean, you're not going to be able to pay rent this month if you spend all your time working on a friend's project, right? What RFA really gave me was this like baked in community of journalists all over the country, right? I mean, I remember when I first started RFA, like I was able to ask another reporter who was doing data reporting for AP in California. I asked her, I was like, hey, what is Python? And she basically was like, here's your books. That'll give you a crash course to learn coding, right? I was able to talk to other photojournalists photo who were in Kentucky and Michigan and, and other parts of the country, right? And say like, hey, I know you're not covering extremism, but like, can you keep an eye out for this stuff? And they would let me know, oh, yeah. We're seeing this stuff pop up now. And, and, and I think the other side, too, is just really knowing that, like, number one, I wasn't on my own was, was really helpful. And two, you really got to sort of watch the, the impact that something like just the concept of Report for America, right? This idea of, like, there are lots of journalists who want to do local reporting, who want to find, want to work with smaller newsrooms, who want to work with newsrooms where, like, there is nobody else in the area. It is up to you to get it right the first time. And if you get it wrong, it's also going to be up to you to make sure you correct it. And then really just the process, I'm going to say this kind of jokingly, how do you get those people out of Brooklyn, <laughs> right? Or, or out of these oversaturated media environments because they feel like they have to chase the national outlet where, because they think that's the only place where there's a living wage, right, in this industry. And, and so I think RFA just really kind of allowed me personally, and I think for all of us who, who have been RFA fellows, allowed us to recalibrate and get away from this sense of desperation in the industry that it's collapsing and it's going to go to shit and nothing we can do will stop it and realizing like, 
Actually, no. There's sustainable small newsrooms who are really innovative and really are not waiting to, to change local journalism so it's sustainable. They are the sustainable local journalism already. So it's been an amazing opportunity. 100 Days in Appalachia, one example. We've also talked with reporters at Iowa Public Radio, MLK50, and a couple of others as pertains to Report for America. Last question. Can you name a journalist? Yes, this is everyone that uh, comes on. Can you name a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work? Actually, yeah, this might be a little in the weeds, but there's this reporter in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. His name's Carter Walker, and he's really good at, I mean, I've just been, his coverage of really following the connections between, like, militia activity and January 6th and extremist, but specifically the way he's doing it for Lancaster, Pennsylvania has been, like, I mean, I've read whole sentences and just the way he's structured his stories and his consistency and keeping up with it i'm like god i wish i could do that but yeah that's that's if i could shout out anybody i mean there's a million people who are gonna be pissed at me right now because i didn't say anything or didn't say their name but in lieu of anybody i know uh, yeah no I, I yeah carter walker he's at what is it called? lancasteronline.com i am at his twitter right now I will, yeah. I will also i will make sure that he knows that you just shouted him out anyway well we haven't spoken or anything so it'll be It'll be his first time hearing from me. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your uh, future, which certainly seems very promising and certainly seems very, it's uh, going to be interesting at the very least. Spicy. The meatball is spicy. That's what I always <laughs> say. <laughs> All right, Chris, thank you. No, thank you. Report for America is all about local journalism and national service. This organization places reporters with news outlets all over the country on a two-year commitment. It is a great opportunity within the field. The application deadline is coming up January 31st, so if it's something you're interested in or are thinking about, head over to reportforamerica.org and apply. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.